This is Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to edition 141 of our Digital Thread podcast series. Today, I'm pleased to host Simon Campa, the CEO and co-founder of Sensei, the leading cloud-based solution for predictive maintenance 4.0. Sensei is one of our Momenta portfolio companies. Simon has over 20 years leading the development of mission-critical software across industry, aerospace, and defense. Before Sensei, he was Managing Director of Critical Software UK, where he expanded its operations and established its focus on data analytics systems for complex machinery, such as helicopters, aircraft, and trains. Simon then co-founded Sensei to disrupt the predictive maintenance domain with a fully automated and turnkey solution targeted at the wider industrial sector. Simon holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Southampton. Simon, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for inviting me onto this uh, series. Always a pleasure talking with you and the team at Momenta. Yeah, as uh, as well. And I, I know I say this all the time because I listen to my podcast and I always say, you know, we, we, we it's finally time that we had you on there. But you were one of our earliest investments. So it absolutely applies. I don't know why we've waited so long, uh, but I'm sure, uh, you know, we'll have much better stories for that as well. So just in starting, what would you consider to be your digital thread? And in other words, the one or more thematic threads of experience that have defined your digital industry leadership journey? Well, I guess it's always even you know from when I did my PhD, it's, it's always been about data and extracting value out of it. And if I look back at my first uh, first career step, which was at Lockheed Martin in the defense industry, it was very much about analyzing you know interoperability and data between different military assets. You know how do I don't know how do tanks and fighter jets share situational awareness and other tactical data, um, and and you know the, the next position I took then was is even more about data. It's about um, analyzing um, London vehicle data. So this is back in the, uh, must have been the early 2000s when the congestion charge came out in London and you had ways of analyzing all the uh, vehicle data and, and start charging people and collecting evidence. So it's all about, again, collecting data. Um, and then, you know, went on to a, um, a home office um, project, um, which was about analyzing data on uh, on what was what's called kind of lawful interception of voice and data calls, you know, aka wiretapping. Yeah, so I can't talk much about that one. But again, that was about looking at huge quantities of data and extracting and value from it. And then, you know, in my final um, position before, you know, later setting up Sensei, which really set the foundation for for Sensei, was was working you know, at a company called Critical Software um, and predicting failures in you know complex aircraft and helicopter machinery you know such as you know, imagine like a helicopter gearbox a very uh, complex piece of machinery that's put under incredible strain and it's emitting a huge amount of data and again it's about extracting value from that data and giving insights about um about what that what's happening to that machine um so yeah, I guess my digital thread going all the way back to my PhD and then my my career up until today is all about uh, you know converting data to uh, to insight. 
And that is a really good lead into our conversation today as well. So since you mentioned the PhD, let's go back uh, to to the start there. I noted that was in the semantic web, which uh, certainly was a hot topic and remains one. Um, what was the semantic web and you know what were some of the insights from your studies around it at the time? Well, I'm I'm really pleased that you uh, you're familiar with the semantic web. I think it's uh, it was as you are in the in the turn of the century. It was a a massive topic, and it and it's it still has its followers and and its influences. But perhaps the term itself is not so well known anymore. But um, yeah, I mean, it was coined by uh, back then by uh, Sir T Tim Berners Lee, you know, who invented the uh, the web, and and he realised that the web was essentially dumb to machines. Machines, you know, computers couldn't understand what the content of the website was about and the web traffic was about. And you say it was difficult to offer advanced services on it. And, and the vision by um, by Sir Tim was always to, you know, can we create a, a smart web where you can have very smart search engines and automated services and things. Um, so my PhD was sort of in that broader field and applying, you know, basic artificial intelligence type technologies to, to demonstrate the possible. You know, we had smart web what could we achieve um but you know there were two i think two outcomes that 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 happened um from from the semantic web and i hesitate, hesitate to say that ultimately i think the semantic web failed as, it, as i don't think it did but it, and, and it did really contribute to advancing out to the possible and has morphed into other initiatives um but nevertheless you know two of the big outcomes i think or what what sort of um in in some ways muted it was you know first you know page and brin came along and founded uh, google in, in the 90s, and I remember actually coming across their stand at my first academic conference in 98 in Amsterdam, and they were giving away, you know, free merchandise and whatnot. And uh, and actually, at, at that point, I switched over to Google from AltaVista, if you remember that um, old search engine, and haven't stopped since. But I think what um, Google proved, and this kind of uh, disproved with the semantic web, that actually, um, you know, brute force and lots of processing was a far more pragmatic solution that derived surprisingly good results. Um, you know, because semantic web required quite a, I don't know, barrier to entry to adding a lot of uh, you know metadata and other intelligence to the web. And you know, Google I think proved actually we can be pretty good without doing that. And and you know, in a way, as an aside, and maybe we can mention this later as well. I would draw some parallels with that sort of pragmatic approach with our philosophy at um, at Sensei as well. Um, and I think the second the second uh, reason why semantic web maybe didn't get the up take um, that some would have liked it to, it it does add a significant layer of complexity. You know, well, the beauty of the web is it's so simple and it's so accessible by everybody. Uh, and the semantic web really, you know, kind of went against that that ethos and and added that layer of complexity, added that entry, uh, that barrier to entry. Uh, and actually, you know, people were happy with good enough and a Google approach and things like that. So, so it's a great yeah, it's a great thing to to learn from the semantic web, and it still influences thinking today. Um, but I guess it's uh, it, it doesn't really exist in the way that since uh, Tim Berners Lee wanted it to. Certainly not in the sense, I guess, that there are things that are explicitly, I'll use the term tag to kind of simplify yeah. the idea of the semantics, uh, versus the idea that things are discovered and self-identified and tagged, think kind of XML in some sense, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, and I, I agree with you. I think, you know, the explicit approach didn't happen, but that implicit one is where the power is in many things that we do. And especially when you think of the the Internet of Things and this idea that devices are discoverable and their capabilities are discovered and then their insights are discovered, right, as, as all part of the in, in interrogation, if you will, with the devices. So I, I agree with you. I think it's a great lead into the, the, the work you guys are doing. Um, I know you went on to lead enterprise-grade development efforts, Lockheed, that's also my alma mater, uh, Siemens, and then finally ended up as Managing Director of uh, Critical Software UK, a, a term that maybe the audience has forgotten here too as well, a CMMI Level 5 company. As I, may re as I remember, it was only IBM at the time for the space shuttle computers that was, had uh, reached that pinnacle, if you will. But I know you guys are providing safety-critical software engineering for aerospace, energy, defense, government, and and, and transports. Tell us a, a bit about some of your early wins at Critical Software, and I guess really what inspired your interest in predictive maintenance there. Yeah, so yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned CMI Level 5. I think it still lives with us when, you, when you've worked at a company that has that for six years, uh, and you, know, you, you are a very deterministic, almost process-driven business, and you have to because you're, you're developing safety-critical uh, uh, systems. Um, and, and even today, when we think we're actually, we're quite a uh, quite dynamic, you know, startup with uh, process light, you know, our, a lot of our investors still say that we're quite process-driven compared to uh, to others in their portfolio. So I guess uh, we can't quite shake it off. Um, but from a from a personal development perspective, I guess it was my first role as a you know, CEO, MD. So, uh, and, um, and and that's good and bad, right? So you, you obviously get to learn the ropes on, on someone else's uh, dime effectively. Um, but then at the same time, you know, you I think some of the some of the the best founders have, have done it as a first job and are unencumbered by, you know, the, uh, the the corporate way of doing things. And I think we certainly noticed that in the first year at Sensei that um, we had a little bit of that corporate overhang. Yeah, you know, when we first met you, Ken, as well, that corporate overhang that we had to kind of unshackle ourselves from and become a bit free and in the way that uh, that startups um, operate. But yeah, you know, doing doing my time at, at, at uh, Critical over the last uh, you know six years, I, I did I hire my three co-founders. So I guess that was uh, the best thing I did there. And in particular, I hired um, Rob Russell, who's our CTO, and his background has been in aerospace for. Um, the preceding sort of 18 years when I hired him, um, he and he became the CTO of the the newly established. I can't remember actually what we call it, uh, like data division. I think CTO of data, um, which was essentially tasked with uh, expanding our in our critical our ex predictive maintenance operations across the aerospace, rail, and other sort of critical industries. Um, it wasn't called predictive maintenance then at all. That, that's sort of a, a newer word. It was, you know, terms like diagnostics and condition monitoring and prognostics was used, but essentially it was a predictive maintenance. So that really got us into deeply into that that world. And we worked on a number of really interesting projects for you know the, the largest companies, your GE, Airbus, Boeing, um, and and helicopter companies like uh, you know Leonardo and Eurocopter and Sikorsky, you know as well as as well as rail companies. And you're you're working. On on some really critical projects that, uh, um, um, and, and you know, if any failures on these on on these sort of high value capex equipments, you know, leads to leads to a loss of life. So you do feel that you're you're working on something really special, um, and and I think that's uh, that's you know what really got us into this space. And we always had a had a had a vision of. You know, this is great doing this technology for for the big guys on on big big machinery, but uh, you know, can we can we take those those concepts and that capability and actually offer it to the 
to the wider industry um, who previously had been kind of locked out based on, you know, um, price fundamentally and also the complexity of having these systems. Uh, and I think that's why we then decided to um, to, to set up Sensei. So, yeah, I mean, Critical was the inspiration to, uh, to Sensei, really. And uh, I think uh, we first met you guys probably 2014 or 15, as I remember yeah. uh, at the time. And so you talk about the corporate overhead. I, I As I remember, I think the initial challenge simply was just finding product market fit. You guys were looking at not across a number of different sectors, some um, I, I would say um, uh, biased a little bit by uh, grant work you were doing at the time in the UKTI, but ultimately it was finding that sweet spot of which you know you clearly did uh, in that time. So you mentioned Rob Russell, your CTO, um, who also co-founded a Sensei with you, and I believe uh, we also met at the time mar uh, your marketing head Alexander Hill, who uh, also uh, co-founded as well. Um, Sensei, so one of the first companies that we knew of really looking at this idea of bringing condition monitoring as you say, or prognostics down to, uh, or making it more accessible, if you will, to yeah. um, other enterprises outside of the traditional defense. Um, so when you guys uh, left Critical Software to found this, I mean, what problem were you truly setting out to tackle and, and, and really for whom in terms of your target group? Yeah, well, um, for the first sort of six or nine months, and I think it kind of culminated um, probably actually when you visited us in uh, in Southampton, Ken. You know, we were, I guess, we did the uh, the classic mistake of uh, startups where you start at the vision, and we were going to solve the world, right? Every every. Uh, vertical we wanted to uh, to tackle and clearly you could never start in that way so uh, we we wound up back to where you know where, where the obvious place was which is uh, you know looking at uh, machinery in the industrial space I mean we we even had a spell in agriculture you might remember which was a uh, which was actually grant work, and that's probably the downside of grants and give you money to follow the wrong things. Um, but you know within by the end of 2015 which was our first year we had sort of narrowed down to uh, to looking at you know, predictive maintenance still wasn't a word in 2015 uh, within the industrial space, in particular within a few sub-verticals. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the problem we were trying to solve was taking capability from the higher-end sectors like oil and gas and, and aerospace, railways, um, where, you know, they're very, very unique, bespoke approaches. You know, you're developing physics-based models, $100 million projects, and, um, you know, very uh, skilled engineers using those um, those those tools. Um, and say, well, can we create the same kind of capability, but, you know, it's a bit of a corny word, but democratise it, make it available to the wider industry who may only have, you know, motors and pumps and things and offer them a and a similar capability. And to do that, you need to bring the the cost down by several orders of magnitude. And that's obviously where AI and things come in, because you can start automating it, but also making it accessible to your average engineer, not a skilled di diagnostic engineer, um, which may be commonplace in aerospace, not only gas, but most industries haven't got those sort of skilled engineers. So we had to develop a, a way of automating something that's very complex and then making sure the output and the, the, the user experience is as simple as possible. Um, so that's that's sort of where we we were at the at the end of um, you know 20, 2015 and and uh, you know thanks to you know some some clever people including 
you guys at Momenta, we we narrow down that product market fit, and I think we still we're still tuning it. We every six months we still challenge ourselves and tune it. I think as you need to do, um, but the biggest sort of pivot, if you like, was at the end of 2015 to to make sure that we really started to focus. You know, um, as I look at the other use cases you were looking at, take AgTech as an example. Um, in some sense, the markets themselves are coming to you in terms of the availability of use cases, where the initial focus, I think, is absolutely really important to have um, and to really prove and to tune your, uh, your, your hypothesis about your value add. Uh, in some sense, I think the wider remit of the things you guys were looking at originally will come to pass. And it's a matter of those markets just getting to the point of ready. And I can certainly vouch for ag tech because we're doing quite a bit of ag tech work lately yep. that is almost reminiscent of what you guys were, were looking at in the uh, first place. I had to laugh when you said the word democratize was a bit uh, corny, but in some sense, that is what Moore's law truly is. It's the democratization law in some sense, yep. right? Uh, and, and in IoT, you've seen that, especially where, you know, what was, you know, here to force SCADA systems, PLCs, things like that are being done on, you know, in some cases, Arduino boards, right? And, you know, kind of low impact, if you will, uh, use cases. And so you you naturally see that democratization coming down to all things uh, OT or uh, IoT in that case. So tell us about some of your notable use cases and wins at uh, Sensei. Yeah, well, you know, in the first days, uh, first year, it was, it was just trying to get access to 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 machines and data. You know? So we uh, that that's you know just almost desperately you, know, you need to charge for it. So you, luckily we had some local companies that were willing to do that, and and that was the start. Um, but they were never going to be our our sort of customers because our sweet spot was always going to be you know the very high scale diverse factories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in itself is a bit of a problem in, the, in in emerging industries where the initial use cases are often limited to you know small scopes, not the factory of single machines and things. Um, but you know, in terms of then our first sort of notable win, this was in 2016, um, was with uh, Nissan in the UK, and the timing just happened to be spot on for that because Nissan at that point had strategic ambitions to increase the productivity of their plants and the UK plant in particular had been given the remit to explore that and they had a couple of failed projects with you know your typical sort of big industrial automation businesses and then they found out about us and it was just a perfect timing because they were under pressure to prove something and they had two failures already and then they they got this this nice little UK startup with experience in you know aerospace and things that just clicked for them. Um, so there was huge pull from them. They unusually had a lot of digital data already. This is back in 2016, and I still think within the automotive industry they're an anomaly you know, uh, in terms of having so much of the factory covered by um, by you know, digital uh, equipment um, and uh, collecting sensor data. Um, so that was our, our first really big win and it, may, it continues to be a, a great account that keeps going from from strength to strength and then soon after maybe six months after that so this is probably the end of 2016 um we we, we secured our first if you like a really competitive win with a major steel producer where we were pitted against you know 12 other vendors including the usual you know big guys incumbents and some of the younger competitors and uh, I was like, wow, this is going to be a tough one. Alex, my co-founder, is more naturally optimistic. He was like, yeah, great, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. And we won it hands down. And I think that was a great marker for us to say, hey, you know, we're okay. We can compete here. We generally have a product that, uh, you know, is uh, has been produced by a much smaller team at that time must have been 15 20 people and we can compete with some of the some of the big guys so that's a really major 
um, milestone for us to give us that uh, that that uh, rec- recognition and credibility that we were we were serious players. You've used the term predictive maintenance for or PDM for to describe your solution space. What what does the term mean to you, and how does this differ from you know condition monitoring exam as an example or prognostics? Yeah, I mean, Alex came up with that 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 term, um, and uh, I, I quite like it. Um, you know, for for us, predictive maintenance four point is is really covering in entire factories, not just limiting the scope. And if you look at you know industry four four naught, it's it's all about big transformation project and making it. Uh, you know, covering your entire supply chain and your factories with it, making it very accessible to, you know, your your, your average engineers, to your leadership team. Um, so, and, and we see a lot of predictive maintenance projects that are so narrow in their focus that um, we kind of wonder, well, what, you know, there's a lot more impact they could be having. Um, and and so for us, it's always about that that massive scale and integrating it with so many other industry 4.0 sort of systems that don't have them in, in silos. Um, in, in terms of how it relates to all those other terms, I mean, for me and for us, predictive maintenance is the sum of, you know, diagnostics, prognostics, condition monitoring, um, and, you know, and prescriptive analytics and things. Um, and it's kind of, you know, there's no sort of one technology um, that, uh, that that suits the solution. So it's a combination of, of all those. Let, let's drill down on some of those terms because the audience may not be up to speed on that. And I think you guys have developed some nice semantics there. So as I understand it, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if I look at industrial a- analytics, I'll call it maturity. There's descriptive analytics, kind of tells you, you know, what happened in the past. Think a uh, dashboard, if you will. Diagnostic analy- analytics, what's, you know, what helps you understand or it helps you understand why something has happened in the past. Predictive analytics, which we've been speaking of, so you know, uh, you predict what's most likely to happen in the future, and then something the kind of the nirvana of the industry is prescriptive analytics. So you know, recommending actions you can take to affect uh, those likely outcomes. Do you generally agree with these definitions? And if so, you know, when do you see us arriving at this pinnacle of prescriptive? Yeah, um, yeah, I've seen those those uh, and similar um, descriptions. Uh, in, you know, in the in the media and the press and, and other places, um, I, ca- I can't say I'm the biggest fan of them. At least not the first two. I see them very much as an IT-driven take on an OT problem space. Um, and you know, for example, I, I wouldn't classify diagnostics only about looking at the past. It's, I mean, traditionally you, we use diagnostics to tell about the future. You can kind of look at the current state of the machine and and, and identify whether it's in a failure mode, and then you can make a interpretation when you think it might fail. It may not be as accurate as predictive analytics, but it can still be used to to sort of talk about a future event. And and in certain aerospace, those terms were and still are used. Um, yeah, but just to expand on what I said in the previous question, you know, for, for us, predictive maintenance has to be all those four working in unison. You know, it's not a mutually exclusive list. Um, and, you know, there are different machines behave differently, different scenarios. You've got different people operating it. So no no one technology approach will give you all the answers. Um, and, and as for prescriptive analytics, uh, I, I would agree with that that definition. And there are some solutions, including ours, that, that provide some of that functionality, um, but you know, certainly, certainly Rob Russell, our CTO's view on it, he's a little bit more um, anxious about. It. He he thinks by definition it's it's always going to be a very customer-centric approach because each customer has different processes and standards. You know, each one does maintenance 
in a different way. They have maybe different protocols for when to do take certain actions. So it's always going to be very specific to a to a customer, and that then by definition makes it harder to automate and and create a solution that that then scales. So we we support prescriptive analytics to an extent, but it is driven by the customer having to add some of their expert knowledge into the system, which then you know for us is a big. It's a big challenge because we like to have a fully automated system out of the box, turnkey, and as soon as the customer has to do something, it kind of negates that a little bit. But um, so I'd say we're we're getting there, we're, you know, Ken, um, on prescriptive. Um, um, but uh, maybe maybe another two or three years away before we can truly call it that. Mm, yes, uh, the, the, I guess the best analogy I've seen is at least on the ag tech side, since we mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that uh, instead of uh, just predicting uh, crop yield, you know, based on uh, environmental factors and such, you actually, in some sense, inform it by telling you what seed to plant at what point, at what point to fertilize, what point to water. And of course, that that goal setting, if you will, is uh, reassessed every day. And so in some sense, you you achieve the yield you set out based on putting all the factors together versus um, just predicting, you know, that the yield will be a certain percentage or a perspective, if you will. So it's it's pretty interesting because you start to see that coming even in process industries we're seeing where, you know, setting these goals is, you know, uh, efficiency of the line more important or, you know, do I have a, a need to drive the equipment at, you know, maybe 90% of capacity, which I know will shorten its life, but will get out these, you know, six orders that I have to get out. And so fully agree with you that uh, it is very much customer driven, but it's also very much driven by almost day to day, if you will, customer needs. And so uh, there, there is a whole world ahead of where we sit with uh, predictive, but you guys, I think, are already building the uh, the basis for that. So let me ask, how do you know when an organization is truly ready to adopt predictive maintenance uh, for not, as you call it? And, and um, you know, what best practices have you seen in truly realizing that potential value? Yeah, this is a, this is a massive area. And I think it's, I'm pretty, pretty sure every single one of our peers and competitors has the same you know challenge um it's there's a huge demand for for wanting industry for technologies and predictive maintenance um but that, that demand is not always met by you know readiness um so yeah I, I in my head i see it as let's say you know in our industries at least 90 percent of businesses want to do predictive maintenance um, but in our experience of those Maybe only twenty percent are are going to be worth engaging, um, and, but the trouble is, it's a bit like in it's a similar quote in marketing. You don't know which that twenty percent is until you spend considerable effort with them, uh, and that other eighty percent can, in the meantime, sap a lot of your pre-sales effort and energy um, before you can realise it's not going to really be a successful project. Um, and you know, we focus only on the largest kind of Fortune one thousand type companies, so they're all big logos and things. You all want them to succeed, um, but a lot are just not in the right place yet to succeed at scale. Um, so we, 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 yeah, we and others see it as as very much the sort of two areas that we look for for a company to so kind of judge a company's readiness. Um, one is is probably the most important. It's cultural readiness, um, and you know, not just for predictive maintenance, but in industry four point naught in in general. Um, and we look for you know, is there strategic support from the sea levels for such initiatives? There's an awful lot that uh, seem to 
sit in the innovation R&D arm, but don't really have any operational support. So we look for strategic support. Um, and, and more specifically, we look also then for are there already good maintenance practices? Because if they haven't got the fundamentals in place, you know, they're not even doing preventative maintenance properly, um, then it's going to be harder to get the workforce to adopt a more proactive or more advanced solution. So we look for that. And there's a number of other factors we look for. And the second one, also important, but you can negate it if the first one, the cultural one, is strong, is technical readiness. You know, um, you know, most businesses, I don't think, fully appreciate what data they've got available or they haven't, how to extract it and how to share it. And even if they do have an idea, they mean then lack the capacity to do the job themselves. So you can bring partners in, but the whole thing, you know, slows it slows it down. Uh, and we've kind of encapsulated these two um, sort of vectors in something we call the PDM readiness index, uh, which our sales teams use together with a customer to uh, to kind of evaluate their 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 status quo, where they are, and where they're going, and and whether it could lead to a to a successful project, um, you know, and, and basically trying to qualify them out or in as quickly as possible. Because in, in the early days, we learned the hard way that you can spend over a year getting closer and closer to a customer and then realize, actually, you know, there's, there's never going to be anything here worthwhile, really, in terms of a big project, because the company's just not there yet in, in, that, in their stage of um, evolution. Um, and I saw, and you, I'm sure you've read these as well, Ken, there were a number of studies come out over the last 18 months from all the big analysts, you know, Gartner and uh, ABI and Forrester and things about, you know, somewhere in between two and three and three and four industry four naught projects don't scale. Um, and, and some of that will be because the products themselves may not be fit for purpose um, for the vision of industry four. But a lot of it, I think, is also just businesses not being quite ready yet and not maybe getting to grips with what Industry 4.0 really is and what the trends underlying it really are. You know, you mentioned the last 18 months, just as an, an aside, I'm curious, what patterns have you seen uh, over the, uh, you know, COVID timeframe, if you will, um, relative to, well, both of your business, but more importantly, the use cases that you guys are really driving? Certainly, I mean, Q2 um, aside last year, what we've seen is very much an acceleration in this space. Um, I think, you know, COVID has highlighted the uh, the inefficiencies in supply chains and productivity issues and things. So um, th those, those have, uh, I would say, accelerated. Um, the industry that we've probably seen the most acceleration and most sort of momentum and purpose is uh, metals and mining, where in the midst of the worst of uh, of COVID last, I think it was last May or June, we secured, you know, another metals mining customer. And we've probably secured one every two months since then. Um, that, you know, for these guys, a lot of them, it's very difficult for them to turn off their equipment. You know, these, these might be big blast furnaces and another very expensive CapEx you know, rich equipment that it's difficult for them to turn off. So their only choice really is to optimize what they've got. So they've been accelerating, um, you know, initiatives like predictive maintenance. Uh, great insights there and uh, pretty interesting to see uh, the metals and mining angle on that. So given uh, your own entrepreneurial journey, especially uh, having arrived at, uh, you know, kind of starting your own company here uh, in 2014, what uh, what advice would you give other startup founders? Um, my wife would say don't do it. 
Um, but um, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll ignore that and and I'll say quite the opposite. Do it. Um, and and you know this, Ken, because you've teased me about it. But you know, it, I don't think it's an issue in the US. But in in Europe, um, there's probably a little bit more anxiety about setting up shop on your own. Um, in Europe, we don't like failure, so that, that that I think that stops some people from from doing taking the leap. So I'd first of say, you know, just do it. And uh, I think once you once you go over those first two or three months, you'll never look back, and you can never ever go back to the corporate world. Um, but um, beyond that, and and for us, and I, I mentor a couple of other companies, and it's it's the same. What I say to them, it's it's all about focus, 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 and that product market fit. And I've seen so many other. Peers I, I talked to, they they were like us in the early days. They're they're they're, they're starting at the vision. They're trying to execute the vision from day one, rather than developing a journey to get to the vision. But you know, first you know, just get you know, get a little bit of proof, get a proof point to, to prove that your product works and there is a customer willing to to to, to buy it. Um, I think there's there's a lot of uh, impatience out there. People wanting to accelerate that and start with the vision. So I say. You know, I say the, the the focus word again there. Um, otherwise, yeah, just in general, I would say, uh, um, and that's why I quite enjoyed this exercise. Is you know, get your head out of the minutia of the business, which you know, because you're a, you're you're a founder and a CEO, you wear a lot of hats and you get involved in so many parts of the business. Sometimes it's really difficult to step away and and reflect. And and those are the important points where you need to have that strategic time and and the headspace to to think about where you're heading. Um, and the other thing, as it's uh, mental health week, I'll say look after your mental health because uh, that can strike suddenly um, when you're, you know, and it's a very stressful environment and you do need to look after yourself because it kind of, I have, I mean, I've, I've been lucky I haven't experienced it myself, but I've seen others where it you know, silently creeps up on people and then it hits them and then suddenly they're out of the business for two or three or four months, which is obviously a disaster for a startup. So uh, everyone, uh, you know, look after your mental health and take uh, take activities and actions to uh, to look after yourself. Yeah, excellent advice, uh, especially on the uh, latter point. Um, people, I think, generally underestimate the um, challenge we've all had given, you know, sheltering in place, COVID restrictions, um, you know, and, and and even simple things like running out of toilet paper, right? Yeah. <laughs> With the runs, I should say, on toilet paper as they were early on. So it makes you appreciate the little things in life, doesn't it? Which uh, a good lead into the final question, you know, where do you find your personal inspiration? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I, I struggle with these kind of questions, Ken. It's like, you know, it's like I can't name my favorite food or my favorite song and, uh, you know, my favorite that. that um, you know, just, I, I look at a lot, I read a lot of books and um, and I follow a lot of different people on, on LinkedIn and things. But what really interests me all the time um, is, is, and we've been, you know, we've been in the industry for um, world since 2014. So I guess in some ways that makes us uh, veterans. Um, and I find it so exciting just that the whole sort of... Uh, that whole ecosystem of industry 4.0, how it's been developing, how it's still changing dramatically, and and different sort of angles are coming up. And I'm you know seeing exciting startups come and go, and I'm meeting your know, fellow entrepreneurs, and and just seeing what competitors do. I think it's fascinating what sometimes uh, competitors think of that we haven't, and you can learn a lot from that. So you know, for me, it's it's really just that 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 mass dynamism and buzz in the industry 4 space on you know globally um, that uh, I just find enthralling. 
Yeah, we we certainly do as well. I've always liked the uh, Silicon Valley term coopetition as yeah. there's really no competition. There's just uh, you know uh, the the ability to collaborate and compete at the same time, which is a a nice dichotomy to hold in your mind. <laughs> but that is an ecosystem by definition, right? Everything overlaps a little bit and supports each other and uh, you know derives from each other. So, well, Simon, thank you for spending this uh, this time with us today. No, thanks. Thanks, Ken, really, for uh, for inviting me onto this. And as I said to you before, for the talk, um, it, it allowed me to, you know, when I was thinking about um, some of the things I'd like to say yesterday, it really allowed me just to sit back and reflect on on a journey we've we've taken. And I think that's a really healthy exercise. So uh, thanks for, uh, for inviting me. Yeah, and I think the uh, journey, as we joked earlier on, you know, predictive versus per versus prescriptive is, um, yeah, I think the journey is just beginning. And uh, so it is a very fun place to see, especially, you know, those of us who, like yourself, who have deep, uh, really DNA, you know, who have seen this industry in, uh, you know, uh, uh, aerospace and, and other sectors, and you see all of this Italy, you know, democratizing, to use your term, you know, coming down. So there's a lot ahead of us in uh, this regard. And you guys are very well placed. So we're uh, we're proud to be investors in you. So this has been Simon Campa, CEO and co-founder of Sensei. And if I uh, can say so, extractor of industrial insights. Uh, we'll call you the miner. So thank you for listening. And please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.